If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. If you're joining us today, uh, we're being, I've been preaching through the book of Malachi, and uh, today is the last sermon in that series. And so we're at the end of the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. It is inerrant. It is completely inspired, and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, oops, and training in righteousness, even if your mic goes falling down. It's good for all that. Malachi says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. God, we ask that your blessing would be upon this word. We pray that your glory might be shown. And Lord, as we close out this book, uh, may Malachi's words once again become active in the lives of your children to convict sinners, to comfort those who need your healing, and above all, Lord, for you to get glory. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were to ask me, Doug, what is one of your favorite movies, I'd have to tell you it is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I absolutely love watching those, so much so my wife has probably seen them numerous times now, uh, but I love them. And there's a, a little statement that happens, if you remember that story, that um, Bilbo, uh, Frodo's uncle, is writing a book. And at the beginning of that book, he says, there and back again, there and back again. And that's sort of what Malachi is like as we close it. We've been there. And we're back again. He is constantly calling upon the nation of Israel to turn back to God. And he's also continuing to comfort them. If you remember in chapter 1, he talks about how God's love and His eternal love, how He has chosen them and set them apart. How He constantly calls and reminds them of the priest's duty to teach the law of God and to guard knowledge. He also talks about the importance of guarding against marital unfaithfulness and unfaithfulness in covenants. So as there is security and blessing and healing, all those things continue to happen again as we finish now in chapter 4. And these are important words for us because if we were to put these words in the context of history, after these words happen, almost 400 years of prophetic silence happens. 
No more does the Spirit of God speak until John the Baptist steps on the scene. It is an interesting time. And these are sort of last words, as one person said, are lasting words. Those are the words that sort of mean the most. And Malachi has some important words to say to us. So he begins here by saying, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will stumble. Well, Malachi wants to remind the folks again who have been in a context of warfare, have been persecuted by their enemy, the Edomites, and they're wondering about their security. And again, Malachi reminds them that a day is coming. A day of judgment. And it is against two people, the arrogant and the evildoer. Now, please notice this is not the refining fire that he talked about earlier in chapter 3. A refining fire is to purify, to make better. No, this is a destructive fire. It is to obliterate. In the military, we would call it napalm. It is to blow things up and to destroy it. To utterly get rid of it. And it's against two parties. The arrogant and the evildoers. The arrogant emphasizes the inner nature of a person, of how they think their will is better than God's will. And the evildoer is the one who puts it into practice, who demonstrates that their actions are against God's laws and His decrees. These words of this coming day not only end in the Old Testament, but begin in the New Testament. If we were to look at Matthew chapter 3 and see the ministry of John the Baptist, he would tell us this about Jesus. He would say, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. But get this, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There is this constant reminder and constant loving warning to all of mankind that judgment is one day coming and that the wicked will be burned up like chaff. Now, chaff is not used commonly in American terms, but what chaff is referring to is the outward kernel that's around the husk of the seed. And when, when they would sift, they would throw up the grain into the air. The, blow would, the air would blow the husk off. And it would be absolutely good for nothing. It would be completely burned up because the seed is the kernel, what they wanted. And so God warns us that the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. You see, this imagery Malachi has given us gives us the idea that the justice and the destruction of sin was to be utterly complete. It would not be partial. It would be complete, done, and focused on. But not only would this destruction be complete, it also has another purpose. One, to warn the evildoer and the arrogant. This is what will happen to you if you do not turn to God. But it has a second thing. There's a blessing with it to those, Malachi says, who fear His name. Look with me in the text at verse 2. The Lord, Malachi says, is to be a son of righteousness. He is to bring healing in His wings. This imagery of a son brings back to one of my favorite verses, Psalm 84, verses 11, that says this, For the Lord is a son and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You see, not only is the sun and the flames destructive, but it's also healing. 
And it's necessary for growth and for life. Jesus talked about this Himself in the book of Isaiah when He said to the people, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, will, the light will shine on them. You shall increase their gladness of heart and harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You see, the time of darkness was about ready to end. And Malachi's job was to tell the people, to tell the Israelites, the sun was coming. The sun of righteousness, S-U-N. But we know later that S-U-N transferred into S-O-N. And it is the sun of righteousness which we celebrate during Christmas. Zacharias understood this when he was prophesying about John the Baptist's birth. He said this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. And catch this, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. One would have to wonder... Did Zacharias meditate on the book of Malachi? Because clearly these words are a direct echo of what Malachi said. Even Simeon, who we are going to look at a couple weeks from now. You remember him? He was the aged man who, who was told he would not die until he saw the hope of Israel come. Listen to what he said. My eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Again, this image of light is all throughout it. Even Paul, when he stood before King Agrippa, said this, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. You see, the message of a light was indeed good news. In fact, it was great news. And, it, and it's this light that pervades. It, it shines and brings glory to the people to give them hope in their darkness. Now, I told you a minute ago that The Lord of the Rings was one of my favorite movies. If you remember the story of the two towers, there's a great battle that happens at night. And when J.R. Tolkien wrote this, there's, if you read through the books, there's huge Christian imagery all throughout the books. And if you remember that battle, the orcs were coming in uh, to take Minas Tirth, I believe that is correct, and the battle was raging through the night. And Gandalf made the promise on the dawn of the fifth day, we will come. And the movie does a great job picking up on this book that when the light began to shine, hope was renewed. The darkness went away. You see, when we see our darkness, the light shines the brightest. And what Christ, I'm sorry, what Malachi is wanting to show these people is that the sun of righteousness is about ready to dawn. It is about ready to rise. And it is to give hope to the people. And what would this hope look like? Look what Malachi gives. He gives a visual image. Now, sometimes we don't catch this because most of us don't work with cows. But Malachi says, Like calves freed from the bondages of its pen, 
so too would the righteous be when they are released from the stall of sin. You will also, he says, go on to tread down the wicked. There is great joy. There is a releasing. And it's like an animal that is set free. Probably our best comparison is if we have a dog that we keep at home. And you know when you have a puppy and you're trying to train him at home, and then that one day you let him out, he runs like crazy. He wants to go all over the place because he's been freed. The same image is true for those of us who have faith in Christ, that that light of Jesus would come. The other comfort it brings is not only would be releasing from the bondage of sin, but also the treading down of our enemies. It can often seem that we would not want to see the judgment of the wicked, knowing the destruction that they face, but we will. For those of us in Christ, we will be encouraged by it. We will be humbled that it's not as much as we deserve it. We will be overjoyed as a city when the righteous reign, and we will see vindication of those who lost their lives, the martyrs of God who cry out, How long, O Lord, how long, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, this expectation is not only to be the folks at Malachi's time, but it is to be the church in our time. We are to have that joy. You know, the only couple comparisons I can think of that in today's day and age is when we saw the joy of the Iron Curtain come down. Depending on when you were born, you can remember that day. And people, Germans, were taking sledgehammers to that wall and breaking that down. There was great hope that now they'd been released and judgment had, had fallen on all this evil. Also, you can remember the day, you and I can remember the day not too many years ago, when they told they had captured Saddam Hussein. And they have this imagery of the, the, they're making this report. And two Iraqi men sort of jump up and are just completely overjoyed. They're high-fiving. They're hugging one another. It's because evil has been done away with. No longer will it reign. You see, this is the hope that we as Christians should have of twofold of when Christ comes. One, of the judgment of evil but also the hope of His return. And Malachi paints this picture to the Israelites that one day, that day is coming. And that day, when He comes, evil will be judged. And we saw that when Christ was born and He went to the, death on, or went to the cross and He died for our sins. Death was destroyed. The works of the evil one was destroyed. But also there's that hope that as we remain, that when He rose from the grave, one day we will be with Him. And like, like Malachi says, we will be like calves that are released from the stall. We will be overjoyed. So this begs us a question. If this is a reality, and this is true, how is our heart when we think about the day of the Lord? More specifically, how is your heart when you think of the day of the Lord? I wonder if, I wonder if some of us struggle with indifference. Well, if it happens, it happens. I hope it does. Eli Wiesel, the Jewish author and avoider of the, of the Nazi prison camp, said this, Because of indifference, one dies before one actually dies. It could be, too, we have minimal faith. Well, I know they would said it would, but it probably will be some time from now. 
Or perhaps our heart might be like this. We may not really want it to come. It might interrupt our dreams, our 401k, our wedding plans, our goals, our aspirations. I think Malachi speaks to our heart to sort of say, how do you look forward to the day of the Lord? And how do I look forward to the day of the Lord? And I think it challenges us, it behooves us to look at our heart and say, what is my level of expectancy? What if Christ came tomorrow? How are we supposed to look forward to that day? You know, as we go through all of Scripture and we look at redemptive history, there's only one person that comes to mind that was given great warnings of the day of the Lord. And Jesus tells us to remember this person. This person actually is not given a name, but is identified by her relationship to another. Her name is this. Her name is Lot's wife. You may remember her. She traveled with Abraham and Sarah and Lot to Canaan. And after facing dilemma, she and Lot moved to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham and Sarah went their way. And they moved to separate times. And they went to Sodom and Gomorrah because, as Lot said, the land was good down there. And it was good for business. However, the cities in which they lived were exceedingly wicked and immoral. But God loved Lot. We're told Lot was even a righteous man, even amongst great immorality. And even when the angels of the Lord came to visit Lot, the men of the city wanted to rape them. However, Lot deterred them. And the angels warned Lot and his family of the coming judgment of the coming day of the Lord. Well, you can probably wonder what the conversation was that night in the bedroom when they talked about what the angels, their visitors, had said. Is it true? Well, that means we're going to lose this, this, and this. Well, our daughters won't have their futures with their husbands they've been proposed to. All these things were going through their mind of different busyness, we wonder. Most definitely, in Lot's wife. The next morning, the angels grabbed Lot by the hand. I wonder what that grip must have felt like. Because Lot hesitated, we're told. And the angels grabbed them and pulled them out of the house. And as they're being pulled, the angels warned them, Do not look back. Don't look back at the judgment that is coming. However, Lot's wife did not heed the call. Her longing eyes showed her true love, and it cost her her life. In Luke 17, Jesus warned His disciples in the context of the coming day of the Lord to remember Lot's wife. Now let's think about Lot's wife. You see, she had received favor in her life her whole life, pretty much. When only a few families at the time of her living were exposed to a true relationship with God, she was blessed and privileged to be caught up in the train of Abraham and Sarah. She was with them, and she was with her husband Lot. Abraham was her uncle, and Sarah was her aunt. And her husband Lot, we're told, as I said before, was a righteous man. And not only that, God blessed them. They prospered. They did financially well as they followed Abraham and as Abraham followed God. 
She also probably heard the promises of God. That from your family, you will be blessed. And through your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And she probably heard those things in the context. All these things must have made her aware of the divine intention upon their lives. However, even though the hands of the angels grasped her hands or grasped her arms to escort her out of the city, their grip only pulled her body while her soul remained in Sodom. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, said this, What good effects had all these privileges on the heart of Lot's wife? None at all. Notwithstanding all her opportunities and means of grace, notwithstanding all her special warnings and messages from heaven, she lived and died graceless, godless, impenitent, and unbelieving. The eyes of her understanding were never opened. Her conscience was never really aroused and quickened. Her will was never really brought into a state of obedience to God. Her affections were never really set on things above. The form of religion she had was kept up for fashion's sake. She was a deceiver. And she lied about whose faith her heart was really in. It was a cloak worn for the sake of pleasing the company which was around her, but not in any sense of its value. She did as others around her in Lot's house. She conformed to her husband's ways. She made no opposition to his religion. She allowed herself to be passively towed along in his wake. But all this time, her heart was wrong in the sight of God. And the world was in her heart, and her heart was in the world. And in this state she lived, and in that state she died. Dear brothers and sisters, when we see her heart, we see what's going on when she looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah. We see where her true longings are at. And it's not so much the mere look as what it represented was going on in her heart who the God of her heart was. It was set on the world rather than God. Jesus says to us, remember Lot's wife. And I think as all of us go into this Christmas season, how much do we need to remember Lot's wife? It can be so easy right now in America to be caught up in the same temptations that grab the heart of Lot's wife. So very, very easy. But you and I are called. We are called to be like Lot and go with these men and not look back. We are supposed to live expectantly and hopefully for the day of the Lord. Her act of disobedience is like the siren's song, not knowing that it slowly led her to her death. It was that thing that dulled the senses. It numbed her. And dear friends, don't be caught up in the numbing noise that is going on in our world today. Remember Lot's wife. We should heed the facts that we're told in Lot's wife that nothing is guaranteed or handed to us. Just because your parents are believers doesn't mean, child, that you will be a believer. And just because we have family that are part of the faith doesn't mean they're necessarily so. We need to tell them the good news of the gospel. You see, in the admonishment of Jesus to remember Lot's wife is very important for us this passage. It helps us to throw off indifference and carnality and despair. And it calls you and I, as Malachi called the Israelites, to set your hope in the day of the Lord. 
that He will return, that He will judge evildoers, and that He will bring healing in His wings. So what does Malachi do to help his Israelite folks who are listening to him? As they're hearing this warning, he reminds them where to go in order to be protected from the temptations that grab Lot's wife. Look with me at verse 4 in chapter 4. Malachi says to his people, Remember the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb and for all of Israel. It's interesting that the command remember is used elsewhere in the Bible. However, it is used here in reference to the law. Obviously, the people have forgotten the law of God. The very people who have been entrusted to it, they have forgotten it. And as we talk about remembering, if I were to hand out a sheet today and we were all to have a pop quiz, could you remember the Ten Commandments of the Lord? Could you remember those ten rules that He has set down for His church to always follow, to give Him praise? You see, when a man remembers God, he lets his being and his actions be determined by him. Those commands were simply this, that you shall have no other gods before me, that you shall not make an idol, that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that you will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that you will honor your father and your mother, that you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal nor bear false witness, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox, donkey, car, TV, or whatever else might be in their possession. Those are the commands. And Malachi reminds the Israelites, remember these laws. Moses said, these laws are what give you life. They are not restrictions, but they are means of truly living And that is what gets so messed up in this world that we live in. We're always told these laws are restrictions and not blessings. It is in these laws that we have hope and we have life. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man said, go back and warn all these people. Remember what the Lord said? Or I'm sorry, Moses said? He said, they have the law and the prophets. And then the rich man said, but if they have someone rise from the dead, maybe then they will believe. Brothers and sisters, we have both of those. And that's where we need to point people to, that they have Moses and the prophets, and that they have Christ, and that most importantly, we have the complete text of Scripture before us to aid us and assist us. You see, remembering the book of the law was to cause Israel to fear God and honor His name. It was not just a a book of good teachings or helpful words. No, this was the book of life. And that is what you and I need to do to keep us solid on our focus before us of honoring God. Well, Malachi closes with two quick promises that bear our attention and also prepare us for Christmas. He says that Elijah is coming to turn the hearts to the people of the Lord. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers. You see, when when John the Baptist was to come, his work was to prepare the way of the Lord. 
And even Zechariah picked up on this. He is to turn people in the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of their fathers to their children. It's almost a word-for-word quote if you read in Luke chapter 2. These words were to come. So in the power of Elijah, John would turn these two groups, fathers and sons. No longer would they be at frustration and complaint towards one another, but they would turn to the Lord because this would be the sign that the Redeemer was coming. And when it talks about returning fathers and sons, it doesn't mean just temporarily fathers and sons in the current age that they were in, but it meant returning the sons of Israel back to the faith of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was their fathers that they were talking about. And as Malachi began with reminding his readers of God's eternal love, he tells them that they will be spared from the destruction that is coming. They will be spared. He reminds them that this is where the blessing is at. It is in this coming Redeemer. You know, as we've looked through the book of Malachi, we've seen a lot of different things. We've seen God's love and we've seen God's judgment. We've seen hearts that have been broken and not, not redeemed, who are callous to God's will. And on the other side, we see people who fear the Lord, who talk to one another, and who want to walk with their God. Malachi sort of does two things, as the prophets often does. He corrects the evildoer and those who are falsely listening to the wrong ideas and to the wrong teachings, and he encourages those who are following their God to stay with it and to stay strong. And he seeks to chisel off that sin which so can easily grow on our hearts. You see, the book of Malachi serves us well. It reminds us where our hearts can turn and how quickly we can justify our sin. The great Puritan John Owen said this, If I had attended more diligently and considered more wisely the vile nature of sin, and if I had not allowed my mind to be filled with things of the world and the neglect of my spiritual duties, then I would not be so vile, weak, thriftless, wounded, decadent, and defiled. It was my careless and deceived mind that brought about sin and the transgression of my soul. What helped John Owen become such a great godly man as he hung on and he clung on to the Word of God and to the promises that are before us. Dear friends, as you look back through Malachi and you think about some of the things we have looked at today, I pray that those words would strengthen you, protect you from sin, and help you to live lives for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time of looking in the book of Malachi. And we ask that You would get honor and glory. We thank You how it has chiseled us, how it has refined us. And Lord, for those of us who may be being persecuted in different areas, it reminds us to have our hope in You, Jesus. Lord, that we might proclaim the Gospel, that we might be lights that shine on a city on a hill, so that people might see our good deeds and come to faith in Christ. Lord, help us to be the true Israelites that You have called us to be. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.